Welcome to the Social Leader Podcast, inspired by entrepreneurs, faith leaders, founders, innovators, volunteers, and visioneers from every walk of life. Social leaders are the social venturers among us, those who crave the entrepreneurial adventure of moving beyond charity to integrate and then operationalize their social priorities. Social leaders are the true leaders among us who are trying to forge sustainable solutions to solve humanity's most tangled problems. Welcome to the show. I'm Father Justin Matthews. And hey, real quickly before we begin, I want to let you know that the Social Leader Podcast is presented by Reconciliation Services. We're a nonprofit social venture at 31st and Troost in Kansas City, Missouri, working to cultivate a community seeking racial and economic reconciliation to reveal the strength of all. And if you're inspired by today's show, and if you want to learn how to lead with greater creativity, authenticity, and impact, then you've got to check out our brand new course called The Social Leader Essentials. When you enroll in this course, you're going to get over two and a half hours of leadership training that are going to help you to adopt a social entrepreneurial mindset, help you to root out bias in yourself and in your teams, and then help you to embrace a trauma-informed, strength-based leadership style. And hey, the coolest part of this whole thing is that all of the proceeds from this e-course are used to fuel the social and trauma therapy programs at Reconciliation Services. So I want to invite you to enroll today. Go to thesocialleader.org, and I look forward to having you as part of the course. Well, today I am incredibly, incredibly honored to have Representative Congressman Emanuel Cleaver here on the Social Leader Podcast. Welcome, Congressman Cleaver. Thanks for the invitation. Good to be with you. Oh, it's fantastic to have you on. I know you're so busy. We are just before a massive election. There's so much happening in the country, and we're going to get into a lot of things. The president just actually tweeted out that there's going to be a potential cessation to any negotiations around a stimulus package, a second stimulus package for American people. And we've got a lot to talk about, not just politics, but we want to learn from you, Congressman, about leadership. And you've been a social leader from the time that you were a pastor ordained in the 70s and all the way to when you were a city council and then mayor in Kansas City and now obviously a multi-term uh, congressman serving on behalf of Missouri in the 5th District. Um, I'd love for you to just share in brief, Congressman, a little bit about your leadership journey. How'd you go from Methodist pastor to being a multi-term congressman? Well, uh, I, I, I grew up in a family of, uh, of, of ministers. Uh, I'm, I'm a native of uh, Texas. And um, one of the rare parts of my life is that uh, I'm one of the, I have uh, one of the few families, African-American families, that can go back deep into slavery. I mean, I can, my dad is Lucky Cleaver. He's 98 years old and, and still in charge of his faculties. Uh, his father's Leroy Cleaver. His father's is... Uh, Noah Albert, his father's Frank, his father's Pledge, his father, uh, my great, great, great grandfather uh, is Frank Jr. So, senior. So, uh, we can go back further than, than almost anybody you're going to find. But uh, they took a route with the, the ministry and uh, they did the sacerdotal. They were, they, they, they believed that the ministry was marrying people and doing communion, uh, preaching the gospel. Uh, you know, going out to visit the sick and, and so forth. Uh, and then I, on the other side of my family, uh, that is just uh, as loved, uh, are the, some of the, the names that are probably not as familiar to this generation, but uh, they were known all over the world uh, at one time. And one is uh, Eldridge, Eldridge Cleaver, uh, who was the third ranking member of the Black Panther Party, had a, a bestseller called Soul on Ice, uh, he has a very interesting uh, life. He uh, was an activist um, with the Panthers and got into trouble. He went to prison. Uh, and then Pete O'Neill was the leader of the Black Panther Party here in Kansas City. Uh, this generation probably won't recognize his name, but uh, you start talking to people, uh, the baby boomers, uh, uh, maybe the generation after, uh, uh, after, before that, they would know uh, Pete, Pete O'Neill. He's in exile mm -hmm. in uh, Tanzania now. So it kind of, I had a choice of which way I was going to go. And I think I've, I've married the two, uh, the, 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 the ministry part of, of my family background and the activist part. 
without the uh, some of the components of the Black Panthers. Yeah, and you know, it's amazing to look at how those two things are on similar trajectories to some degree about taking care of people, but at, at the same time have very different tactics. And if ever there was a role of the church in reconciliation, it sounds like you've sort of embodied that in your own church history, extracting the precious from the worthless in your life and trying to mold an identity and a social leadership. Well, yeah, uh, many people probably don't know that the, the, the program that provides breakfast in schools all over the country was actually started by the Black Panthers. Right. Uh, and, and in here in Kansas City, the parsonage of the St. James United Methodist Church, before I was the pastor, was used by the Panthers for their breakfast program. Wow. And, uh, it, it, and it, it's, it's just a, an amazing kind of a thing that has taken place because, you know, whether you're Black Panther or, uh, or, or you know, a Methodist, uh, and uh, we're supposed to feed the hungry. I think on both sides, you would have, have an agreement. Uh, we're supposed to feed those who are hungry. Uh, you know, let the little children come unto me. Do not hinder them. Um, and so I, I think that they do come together uh, without the, the, some of the, the, the uh, hostility uh, that we saw back in the late 60s and 70s. Well, and you take us actually with that comment right into modern times, because look, if, if we see anything right now in our in our country, we see very divergent visions of how to love one another, how to care for one another, very divergent visions of how um, different groups believe that we ought to be caring for the marginalized and the poor. And the one thing that seems to really have broken down that you've championed, I think, all throughout your ministry and your career as a politician and a social leader is this idea of civil discourse, how to practice civil discourse, the necessity of practicing civil discourse. Um, and it feels like, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, it feels like civil discourse has just totally gone out the window and that leaves so many Americans struggling to survive and succeed. Talk to us about the import of the importance of civil discourse and, and how do we begin to even practice it in the times that we're living in now? Well, I think that historians will probably be able to uh, identify the, the, the moment that the civil discourse in the United States began to go downhill. Uh, but what I do know is that uh, in the uh, late uh, 80s, it, civil discourse began to uh, journey through the uh, the junkyard of communications, and uh, I don't know uh, if it's if it uh, was created through the removal of the Johnson Amendment, which allowed which which no longer required that media companies um, do both sides of an issue. Uh, previous to the Johnson Amendment. Uh, uh, amendment the federal communications uh, required that if you uh, had a, anything that was said by one particular political party, you have to have somebody on the other side. You had to be fair and balanced for real. And so uh, that was eliminated and that gave way to talk radio, which I think, uh, uh, or caustic radio, uh, which I think really went out and, and, and created uh, this uh, toxicity that has engulfed uh, almost all of the country. We are in the middle of it. And people need to understand, you know, and particularly as it relates to the government, you, it's like bees. I, I, I love watching these animal shows and insect shows. I mean, uh, the, the, a bee, the bees can't sting and make honey at the same time. Mm. It, it, you know, the, the, you know the, the, the colony is, is, is separated. Uh, they're the honeymakers. And, and uh, that's what I think we, we have to do. We have to decide whether we want a, a nation of, 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 of uh, stingers or an, a nation of honeymakers. Uh, I, uh, I think honey is a lot sweeter than stingers. Yeah, I hadn't heard that analogy before, and I'm going to hold on to that one. I appreciate that a lot. Not, not wanting to be able to, uh, that you can't sting and you can't make honey at the same time. You can't collect the pollen and sting at the same time. Um, so let's get specific on it. At one point in time, you wrote about the movement to defund police in the middle of, of the protests that are going on. You said, quote, that uh, the defund the police slogan is a, quote, spine chilling and nightmarish name 
for a masterful idea. The idea obviously being to re-engineer police and to address systemic racism and brutality where it may be found and across this, the country. Um, I want to focus on civil discourse again, because if your aim is civil discourse, why is the slogan defund the police so problematic to you? Why do you call it nightmarish? Well, because what we, what, where, where we have gone in our society is uh, to come up and communicate uh, in, uh, in the, the most negative way, uh, the, the, the most confrontational way. And, uh, and so instead of saying, let's reform the police, everybody can say, oh, well, yeah, that's a good idea. Mm. For, for, for some of us, we have to say something that, that's uh, uh, going to get uh, people riled up because we think only if they get riled up was this a good idea. So uh, let's defund the police. Now, uh, you know, I have a, I have a little uh, four-year-old grandson who, who can tell you that we, the, the, the life in this country would be chaotic, uh, may not even exist as a nation if we had no laws and law enforcement uh, individuals. So right. when, when, when people came out and said defund the police, uh, it, they could have easily said, look, you know, it, it's becoming crystal clear that uh, police departments uh, need to uh, look at 21st centuries, uh, 21st century ways to to, uh, to function. I mean, we, for example, right now, uh, and I have a friend here in Kansas City who uh, whose son was schizophrenic, uh, mm. and he, he was a troubled young man. And one day, the son goes out in Brookside with a knife uh, on the lawn. His father comes out and tries to get it, and he, of course is waving the, flat, the knife at his son. So his father called what everybody else calls, which was the police. The police came out, shot him 16 times in front of his dad in the front yard. Uh, and so uh, here's the thing that I think people need to understand, I hope people can understand, is that there, there probably needs to be a, an entire division of the police department that deals with people who are obviously uh, having mental episodes. Uh, and so you're saying defund the police. That, and all you do is creating enemies. Uh, you're creating opposition. And some people don't think life is worth living unless they have some opponents. Uh, and, and based on Jesus, you don't have to uh, say anything negative uh, with intentionality. Uh, all you have to do is try to do good and you can get some enemies. So, uh, so then if that's the case, then why don't you just do good if you're going to get enemies anyway? Yeah. What would you say? I, I I agree with your sentiment personally, because I work here on Troost Avenue and I have since, uh, let's see, I've done this kind of work for the last 22 years, since 2009 here on Troost. And, you know, I see those folks who are struggling with senility. I see those folks who you're talking about, who are really not wanting to entangle themselves with law enforcement, but that are not well and their behaviors are aggressive and, and there's posturing from police and from the individuals and it just escalates and escalates. And I think a lot of our work at 31st and Troost is actually to try to de-escalate things before anybody even, you know, calls the, the police. But let me ask you a question. Some people would point to Jesus uh, and they would say, look, Jesus turned the tables over. Jesus, you know, called people hypocrites and, and he called them whitewashed tombs, right? Now, I agree with you that the law of the Lord is love completely and that that commandment is the greatest commandment, to love God, to love your neighbor. But at the same time, there are people out there on the protest line who are saying, I believe in peaceful protest. There are others who are saying, you know, peaceful protest isn't getting us where we need to go. And so they're agitating. And in some cases, it's getting violent. And in some cases, there's even looting. There's a lot of people that are listening, though, that I think when we talk about civil discourse, these issues all get conflated. The words that we choose, the actions that we take, and people get frustrated when they're always trying to toe the line on one side or on the other. What do you say to those people who are losing hope? What do you say to those people who say, We've got precedent to do more than love. We need to protest. And in some cases, we need to protest um, in a way that gets attention. Without casting judgment on either side, in the light of civil discourse, how do you respond to that? And what would you instruct us to do better? One of my, uh, one, one of my uh, 
lifelong um, guiding individuals is a man by the name of Jim Lawson, James Lawson, Reverend James Lawson, uh, who pastors uh, uh, who pastored uh, in uh, Los Angeles up until about 15 years ago when he retired. Jim Jim Lawson uh, went to 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 prison uh, because he wouldn't go to the Korean War, and uh, he eventually was released from prison. He went to spend time in India with Gandhi, uh, graduated from seminary and pastored in, in uh, Nashville and ended up being, his, his most famous student was a, a guy by the name of uh, Michael King, who's, uh, who eventually had his name changed to Martin Luther King after his, his dad. Well, uh, I, I've, I've said that to marchers in, in Kansas City, protesters in Kansas City. Uh, Martin Luther King never, never, ever led a demonstration where a person was killed. Amen. Now, that's an amazing statement. Now, the, uh, the point was to, 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 uh, to dramatize uh, wrong, where, where wrong was, and, and uh, that Dr. King believed that uh, that the majority of the people are good and decent human beings and that they will condemn wrong. And so the point for John Lewis being beaten on, on the Edmund Pettus Bridge was that the whole world would see it. I mean, John Lewis wasn't looking to get a plate put inside his head, uh, but the world saw it. And so when we demonstrate, uh, we don't need, first of all, we need to do it in daylight. The point is to mm. be seen. We want people to see and mm. hear and respect what we're saying. And if people had had come out with Martin Luther King with guns and bats and uh, brass knuckles, you know, it's just a street fight. But here are these people who are deeply religious, and they're putting their religion uh, in action. It's not a cerebral thing. It's they are act actually demonstrating to the world what they believe, and they're willing to 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 be hurt uh, in doing it. And I've told demonstrators. You know, you know, you can't find footage of a Mar of a Martin Luther King led march at night. So, mm -hmm. uh, it, it, and it's there, and they were always peaceful. In fact, uh, because I grew up in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, of which Dr. King was the the, the president, uh, you couldn't even you couldn't even march if you couldn't go through the nonviolent training. Jim Lawson taught it; it was the first person to to teach nonviolent training. So for someone like me, if you go, if I'm going through the training, there's a, a white person standing next to me and calling me the N-word. And I've got to be able to uh, ignore that and, and keep my head uh, on, on target for the goal, which is to show the world what this man is doing and the world will see the wrongness of it. And that's how we were able to get civil rights legislation, whether it was the Civil Rights Act, uh, the 1965 Voting Rights Act. All of that came as a result of people being peaceful, and 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 all of the, the change we have in this society right now wasn't done with guns; it was done with peace. You know, by the way, if anybody is joining us right now, and if you are inspired, or if you have a question for Congressman Cleaver, we are live on Facebook and on Twitter. Feel free to comment, particularly from the Facebook page, and I'll see if I can bring you in, Congressman. I, I really am inspired by what you're saying, and I've often thought about this that one of the big differences between the protest and the early civil rights movement from the 50s to 65 and, and, and up until uh, maybe 68 uh, when Martin Luther King was assassinated, um, one of the differences was, was there was a clear leader, there was a clear religious authority or some kind of moral authority that stood outside of our opinions or our politics that was sort of guiding the way that we interacted. And there was training. I mean, you brought it up. You could not go do a sit-in unless you were trained. And there were white folks and black folks, young and old, who were trained to do this kind of work. But we live in a time now where it's all crowdfunded, right? Everything is crowdfunded and, and, and sourced socially. And there's power to that. There's power to get a message out that way. But also it, it presents some pretty significant challenges what would your vision be for moving forward um, as we try to make change? We have this social crowd aspect and we have this history of how peaceful protest and nonviolence was done successfully. How would you bring those two together, Congressman? Well, people, I hope people realize that uh, 
that nonviolent uh, protests uh, actually uh, defeated uh, an entire nation and, uh, and, and, and led to the creation of, of, of the, the, the nation now called uh, India. Uh, and uh, Gandhi uh, was an amazing human being who, who was able to get people uh, to, to, to nonviolently uh, confront their oppressors. And, and they did it in a way that led to the movement here in the, in the United States. Martin Luther King was the head of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. It's often said that he was the leader of the civil rights movement. Uh, the reason most people say that is, uh, is, is because he stood out uh, far and above uh, the other leaders like uh, Whitney Young, uh, who was one of the big four at the time, uh, called the big four uh, African-American leaders. But Martin Luther King stood out and I think uh, he stood out for a number of reasons. One was his, the, uh, his uh, guide was uh, uh, Jesus. And um, I, I think, you know, he, he did it in a way that was never uh, too far away from what the gospel would say. I mean, Martin Luther King preached uh, Matthew 25. I, I think it, that, that Matthew 25 is as relevant right now as it was in uh, 1965. Right, the and, parable uh, of the sheep and the goats, and that we'll be judged not on a theology test or not on a on some other, you know, ideology, but we're going to be judged on how we cared for the least of these, right. because in as much as you did it unto them, you did it unto me. Just people don't remember that one. Yeah, I would, I would tell anybody watching us, if you get a chance, uh, read Matthew 25 and read it in terms of, 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 of getting your marching orders, because it, it, your marching orders are given in Matthew 25. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think that, and, and I'm, you know, I have never been booed standing up telling people right here in Kansas City, down on the plaza with four or 5,000 young people, uh, hey, look, you know, let's march during the day. You want to be seen. Uh, and I was in Ferguson. Most of the, 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 the demonstrations uh, during the day were peaceful. When the nightfall set, that's when we had the anarchists coming in and doing enormous damage to the movement. And that's what happened around the country. Most yeah, of we're seeing people, the same thing again today, yeah. again and again. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tragic. Uh, but I, I am still convinced that we can make change uh, and dramatic change uh, nonviolently uh, and peacefully. Because uh, now it won't work unless I'm. Uh, uh, it won't work unless I'm correct, in, in my belief that the majority of the people in this country are good and decent people. Uh, now. Like everybody else, they all of us, you know, from time to time, slip slip out of the light into the darkness. But sure. for the most part, we all want to be in the light. Yeah, I think ninety nine percent of people have good intentions, and that's why I think even when we talk about um, the issues of racism and institutional racism, um, it's difficult for people who don't think of themselves as racist to understand how we can. Uh, inadvertently, intentionally, and unintentionally participate in things that oppress our brothers and sisters, oppress our neighbors, and, and often work in our own, uh, not in our own self-interest. I want to ask you a question related to this, to protest and to civil discourse, though. Um, there's a lot of talk about being anti-racist, and certainly daytime peaceful protest is, is a wonderful way that we can be public about where we stand and to advocate for change. But there's also the role of personal study. There's also the role of doing the hard heart work ourselves of addressing our own racism. But how are we to be anti-racist without being performative? Like, how are we to undertake that work? Particularly, I'm thinking about my white brothers and sisters who are wanting to be um, standing in the front to advocate for our neighbors, to put our bodies in front of their bodies when there are bodies being brutalized. How is it that we can do that work without coming off as inauthentic or being performative, particularly in social media? Yeah. You know, I, I think uh, everybody needs to go through moments of introspection. Um, and, and I also believe that uh, we, also, we have to go through self-interrogation and uh, because there are a lot of good and decent people who, who will say, say things uh, that uh, are offensive to a whole race of people. Uh, and, 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 the, and then they would say, but I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not racist. 
Uh, and one of the reasons I don't call, I don't use the word racist, I don't call people racist, at least I don't call people that, that name, uh, is because when you do that, uh, you, you, you lose communication. That's the end of communications. And so uh, what I would rather do is say, to, to, I have a, a good friend who was uh, trying to uh, say something to me about uh, a situation. And, and in the situation, because we are uh, friends, longtime friends, he used the N-word. And, uh, and I said, hey, 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 wait, wait, wait just a minute. I said, you, you, my, no, you can't, my, not only my, my wife and children haven't heard this, my closest friends haven't heard me use that name. And he said, well, I, I know, but I thought we were friends. It has nothing to do with friendship. I said, you don't use that word. And, and so he, the good news out of that is he said, you know, well, uh, you know, I guess you're going to have to continue to look at me as a student as it relates to the, the issue of race. And I said, you know, the reason we have we have a good friendship is because of what you just said, uh, that you realize that, that, you know, you don't you don't have it all together on that issue. And I think people, you know, uh, they don't realize sometimes that that things uh, are racist. Uh, other than being a Klan member. A lot of people have, un, have mistakenly uh, come to the conclusion that, well, I'm not a member of the Klan. I don't burn crosses on people's lawns. I don't use the N-word, so I'm right. not a racist. Right. And, and, and so, uh, and, and they are convinced uh, of it. I, I heard a guy on TV um, uh, saying he wasn't a racist and uh, everything that he did would lead uh, even Stevie Wonder to see that that's, <laughs> Something that's 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 racist, but uh, <laughs> there might be a few people on TV these days that that are like that. Um, well, let me ask a, another question because you, you're getting at something that actually gets very practical. Because when we're talking about racism and we're talking about how to protest, how to help one another, you know, there's a big debate going on right now. Like I talked about at the beginning of the podcast about whether or not to have a second. Uh, federal stimulus for Americans who are suffering in the wake of the pandemic. And today I, I watched the Fed chair talked about the fact that that unemployment is declining, the economy is getting better. But he tempered that by saying that, you know, look, it's all going to depend on what happens with the virus in the coming months in this pandemic, whether or not we're actually able to sustain that kind of um, uh, forward growth in our economy. But then today, you know, the president came out with a tweet not long before we came on, and he said that he is suspending all um, conversation or all um, discussion about any kind of second st stimulus. Now, look, I don't want to debate the politics and who people are going to vote for, and I know where you're going to vote. What I do want to talk about is the impact of that. When we get to a place where we can't reach consensus, what do we do? Because it, the Congress feels like it's at a deadlock completely right now, and it's not the first time. How do we try to move from this kind of gridlock and deadlock and polarization to get to some place of consensus? Give it some, give it some practical and tactical for us, given our situation today. I don't think there's anything that should come up that is beyond a conversation. And I think the, what, what we've just uh, done is about the worst thing you can do uh, to get things done, and that is to say, we're not even going to uh, to, to have communications. Uh, Jay Powell is absolutely right. Uh, he he appears. He's required by law to, to appear before my committee uh, twice a year, and uh, as the Federal Reserve Chair. And uh, what uh, Ben Bernanke has also said, who, who was Jay Powell's predecessor uh, as the Fed Chair, they said, look. Interest rates are lower now than, than they've been since the planet uh, was created by God. So if you're going to use money, if you're going to borrow money, this is the time to do it because it's cheap. And right now, the issues that uh, are being debated are, do we give people $600 a week uh, uh, during, for a time period certain uh, and, and so that they can spend that money, putting that money out into the economy? And, the, of course, the $1,200. That's that's the point of the separation right now, six hundred dollars. Uh, some are saying, no, that's too much money to give people. Uh, people like me are saying the fact that uh, we're saying that's a lot of money points to where we are in terms of a minimum wage in this country. Uh, you know, if 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 six hundred if six hundred dollars a week is um, 
more than the minimum wage, then we're in trouble, uh, which it is, of course. And and so the other part of it is whether or not we're going to uh, bail out or provide some assistance to the state and local uh, governments. Now, to people who are watching us, probably they're saying, well, you know, I'm not into that. I am interested in the $600 and the $1,200. Uh, but, I, you, you know, the, what, what you need to understand is cities like Kansas City uh, depend not exclusively, but quite a bit on its sales tax revenues. Well, uh, if all of the shopping centers are closed, if most of the restaurants are closed, uh, if most of the uh, nightclubs are closed, most of the pe- places where you can spend money are closed, your sales tax revenues are going to drop appreciably. And that right. means services are going to dry up. So uh, many of us are saying we've we, we got to help the, the local communities. You're talking about defunding the police. You don't help the, the, the help bail out the communities. You're going to end up defunding the police because there's not going to be enough money to keep the police force at the level it is, or the fire department uh, where it is. So I mean, these are critical issues. And I, I still think government, uh, the government uh, shouldn't necessarily be in our lives every day, but there is a role. And, and right now in the, in the middle of the worst pandemic in a century, mm-hmm. uh, with over 210,000 Americans having died, uh, I think it, the government does have a role. And I think it would be uh, governmental malpractice if we didn't step in right now and try to put pump money into the economy by giving people uh, money to just make it until their jobs came back. We have uh, right now uh, unemployment in double digits in this country. Uh, Well, and 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 even worse in some neighborhoods like East of Troost, where I'm working, there are neighborhoods that have exceedingly higher uh, unemployment than that. You're talking like 24% in some cases, and that was prior to the pandemic. And those same neighborhoods uh, are, you know, also not coincidentally because of the history, 91% African-American. I'm thinking one neighborhood in particular, I just read the math on it. So let me make some of those things that you're talking about really personal for people, because I think when they hear congressmen talk about the hundreds of thousands and the billions and and even, you know, 600 a person times 2.2 trillion, whatever. uh, Here's the thing. Since March, Reconciliation Services has had a 56% increase in new clients coming for social and trauma therapy services. We're talking almost 200% of our budget that we were planning on. We're now at over 200% of the budget for rent and utilities. And there is a tidal wave to come. I mean, Congressman, there was a woman who came the other day that had an over $4,000 water bill not just because she lost her job because she was working as a waitress, not just because you know she's not derelict of duty in her finances, she couldn't pay it. But then on top of that, you know, her water main broke on the homeowner's side of her house and there's no, you know, there's no stopping the meter. She doesn't have the money to pay the bill, let alone, you know, to, to, to go and dig it up and fix the pipe with a contractor. So she's walking in, buried in utility debt. And there's only so much we can do. And so to your point also about why it's important for states and counties and local neighborhoods to have that support at the top, from my perspective, you know, we're uh, just found out today that we're actually a beneficiary of the Missouri CARES Act, that we're going to be able to get some help to reimburse some of the work that we've been doing out of our limited savings to help our neighbors we also were able to get the PPP so that we could continue right. operating and keep all of our staff employed. You know, I have 25 staff members that are uh, full-time and contractors and they all were able to keep their jobs. And so, you know, we need each other, no matter where we are on the political perspective or the spectrum, you know, we need each other. And I think that's what you're saying, but I want to, I want to ask you something though, because look, I'm 43 years old. I'm relatively I'm relatively young. The thing is, it seems like worse than it's ever been in my lifetime. But you've had this long career living all the way from the the, the civil rights work that you did and your family did all the way till now in Congress. Congressman, put this in context for us, for me. How bad is it really? Like, what are we facing down right now as a country economically and in terms of civil unrest? Is it as bad as some people think that it is? Well, I grew up in, in Texas uh, during the Jim Crow uh, era, 
uh, and uh, um, I've seen a lot of things. I've heard a lot of things, and unfortunately, I've experienced uh, a lot of things. And I can tell you, uh, without fear of being contradicted, uh, uh, that I, 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 this is a moment of hate that I have not felt before. Now, I, 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 I struggle when in my alone moments with whether it's uh, the hate is, is so visible now as opposed to when I was a kid uh, because of the, of, of the medium, the, the media. We, we are able to, to see it uh, and we can see it all day long on uh, 24 hour cable channels. And, um, uh, but it, it, it's just strong. I, 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 I could tell you about some, some things that's, that are happening right now uh, with me, but uh, as it relates to hate, but, but let me just say that uh, we are in a moment that I've not seen. And mm-hmm. I grew up when uh, I, my three sisters and I had to get off the sidewalk uh, and we were taught as little kids. Uh, you walk on the sidewalks in, da- in, in downtown Dallas or downtown Waxhatch where I grew up. Uh, you have to get off the sidewalk if, if uh, uh, there are white uh, people coming de- from the other direction or, or behind you. You have to get off the sidewalk. You know that's the way it is. Uh, and I, I have seen uh, hatred to the point where, uh, you know, somebody's house was burned down uh, because they uh, had dared to uh, stand up to and question a, a man in, in authority. Uh, now, right now, I, I you know, I was standing out in in front of the World War One uh, museum and, and, and memorial on uh, Saturday at about three o'clock with my son uh, and another friend. When a guy, a guy drove by, stopped his car, and began to scream uh, at, at us about things, and uh, you know, uh, I. We remain silent, thank God, because I, 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 you know, everybody has a gun now, and uh, and so I, I, I'm just seeing things and feeling things uh, that I have never felt and seen in my entire life. And we are better than this. And I, and I think that uh, you know, those of us uh, who who understand uh, that there is a God somewhere, that th- th- this is not like a godless universe. There is a God. Uh, and that God is is, is uh, paying attention to, but will not interfere with uh, what's going on. We have to do it uh, with with the eyes, the arms, and uh, of God, and and we have to uh, act. And we can change things. But right now, this is not a this is not a good moment uh, in our in our uh, in our history. And I, I, I we we need more men and women to commit themselves. To cooling things off, we we you know we need to go through a cooling period politically, uh, I, I think, and and even economically, and just let's cool things down. Mm. And one of the reasons I, I, I I've never run a negative uh, ad on television, uh, in in my all my years, uh, and the reason was is that I think people tell the public what kind of an, what kind of a, uh, an official they're going to be by the kind of campaign they run. I mean, if I'm out calling people names in my campaign and attacking, why do they think when I get to Congress, I'm going to be nice and uh, willing to work with people? I mean, I've already told you, this is who I am. Hmm. And uh, and that's that's unfortunate uh, for the political world. There's a question from Jody. I'm going to put on the, the screen here. She said, how do you stay positive or optimistic in the midst of uncertainty, Congressman? Well, because I, I, I am, uh, maybe I am Pollyannish. Uh, you know, I, I, I think good wins all the time. And, and, uh, but a lot of times, uh, by the time the wind comes, they got, you know, tape and, uh, you know, uh, uh, cast on the legs and so forth. I think that, that happens, but all you have to do to, to, to join me in this wild, crazy optimism is to, to, to realize that all you have to do is look at where we are. Let me look at the things of history. Hitler did not win. He lost. Nice. Mussolini lost. Uh, Tojo lost. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Pharaoh lost. I mean, look, th- there is no history where uh, the, the 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 evil was sitting on the throne. And uh, th- these are tough times. My goodness. I don't want to, I, I will never mislead anybody to believe in that, 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 you know, these are some nice, easy, uh, romantic times. They're not. Uh, but they will be 
uh, and all we all we need is like the the the, the caller uh, is, is is not to quit. We need we we need her uh, because I think we, we she's going to be a part of the reason we win. Yeah. Let me ask you a final question as we start to wrap up, Congressman. Um, there are a lot of people listening today who may or may not agree with your politics, but they agree with, although many do, but they agree with the spirit that you're bringing to it. They agree that we all need to be social leaders. Look, if we're going to really try to make our way through this, you know, what does good winning look like? Like, can you give us a vision for what we can all aim at together? Because there are people, obviously, you and I both know that, that, think that if one candidate wins in, in November that we're going to be this way and another candidate wins, we're going to be headlong into, you know, Marxism. I mean, so th there's so much division. What does good winning look like for all of us? Is there any place that we can come together as a nation on in your perspective? You know, I have advocated and, and you'll probably hear more about this in January uh, uh, because I'm going to do it more vocally than I've done it in the past. That that uh, whoever wins the presidency, uh, uh, both sides of the aisle, uh, hopefully we will say, look, uh, you know, right we, right at the beginning of this new administration or the or, or the renewal of an administration, what we're going to do is not uh, introduce uh, any of the uh, caustic uh, legislation uh, until uh, March or April. We let's. Let's try to get the things that we all agree on uh, right now. We're going to deal with those things. Go through a, a, a period of healing uh, where we we try. We, we, I mean, we 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 put an effort on. It. We don't try to conceal it or hide it. We try to let people know that we want to work uh, together. And uh, and I, I think that I mean, you know, I, I walk around in Washington, and you'd be surprised at the people who uh, who are, are on the in the other political party uh, who will tell me. Uh, you know, I, this is just awful what, what we're going through. Mm. Uh, and and they, everybody is looking for uh, another day. Everybody's looking for a bright new day. And I think that, uh, and we're the majority, and I think we have to do it. And even if we lose, even if we do, are not able to stop it, we can't back up ourselves. We have to continue to do it. I mean, that is my job. I, I, I you know, uh, I, I don't know if, you know, I'm gonna. I'm not gonna be a, in the history books, but uh, while I'm here, I would like for it to be said that you know he tried uh, when he saw wrong to make it right, and when he uh, saw bigotry, uh, he tried to erase it. I, I think all, it, we have to do it in our individual lives, and I think a lot of people are thinking about some huge uh, movement to do it. But right. you know, you can do it in you can do it in your block, uh, do it in your school, uh, your workplace. And the world, the world is getting a little bit better every time you and I touch the lives of others. Yeah, there's an old saying in my church tradition. I'm an Orthodox Christian priest, and this the saying says that through the cross, joy comes into all the world. And and that idea of the cross or our own personal struggle, our own personal you know effort to forgive, or or our willingness to endure the beating or to endure the the loss or to endure whatever hardship comes our way. We have to give thanks for both the good things and the hard things and the bad things, because it's through the cross that joy comes into the world. So you've said um, this one important thing. You said, look, if we want to come together after the election, whoever wins, we need to have a cooling off period where we start passing some things that are easy for us to agree on. So I hear you say we need to build consensus as social leaders where we can, where there's low hanging fruit. What are maybe two other things that you would share with our leaders who want to increase their social impact from whatever their leadership lane is? What are two or three other things that you would encourage them to do that are your personal practices in social so, leadership? We, we need to take a risk. Uh, you know, uh, people end up uh, just associating with people of their own race, of their own denomination, uh, of their own neighborhood. Uh, because it is a risk. It is risky uh, to go out and, and try to, to establish something on the other side. Uh, you know, people are afraid they might get hurt, and they might. Uh, I'm, not talk I'm not talking about physically, but, uh, you know, that they can get their feelings damaged. I, I, look, we, we, we are resilient 
uh, humans that God made us and, and, uh, to, to be resilient. And so, uh, but we've got to, we've got to be, be able to risk. The worst kind of uh, person in the world is somebody who's risk adverse. I, I think they are dangerous because then that means they're not going to create anything. They're not going to do anything significant because they're afraid of the risk. The other thing is that, uh, you know, ho hopefully we can create a leadership uh, group in the, in the country right now. Uh, I, I believe that leaders should always eat last. And, uh, and, and you, you're, you're dramatizing that right there uh, on the corner of 31st street and truth. Uh, when I say leaders eat, eat last, I, I mean, we have to be sacrificial. Um, you know, uh, we have to do things uh, that, uh, you know, might, uh, uh, you know, push us in a, in a situation. I mean, you could, you could probably make a lot, a lot more money if you uh, left the ministry. I, I, look, I, I, I made $400, uh, uh, $350 a month uh, right out of seminary, $350 a month. And, uh, and, and never made, because I wouldn't let the church uh, do it, never made more than $50,000 uh, at our church, uh, a church that's uh, that 2,700 members. Uh, uh, you know, I, I just think leaders have to eat last. You gotta sacrifice. And when people see, well, he must be serious, you know, <laughs> uh, then I think people will then begin to, to, to consider change because, uh, you know, they can, they, they can get, connect with another human being. Um, and also, I don't believe you can. You should agitate and legislate at the same time. You have to make a choice. Uh, mm -hmm. You can't legislate and agitate. If you're going to be an agitator, don't run for public office. That's what, one of the problems we have right now. Is we have agitated people who were agitators who have been successful in getting into the uh, the political realm, and they come in and pollute that realm because they're agitating inside a place where you should be legislating. Uh, and leave the leave the agitating to somebody on the outside. Yeah, as you said, you can't you can't collect the pollen and make the honey and sting people at the same time, can you? So as we conclude, uh, Congressman, again, thank you so much for your wisdom, your time, and and for sharing your heart and perspective. You know, what's your vision for the future of Missouri? What's your vision for where we're headed as neighbors? Where can we look to together? I think uh, Missouri is right in the middle of the country. We have uh, we have we have some characteristics that are so important that most people miss it, and that is uh, when you're in the middle of the country like Missouri, uh, corporations want to move here. I exploited that when I was mayor because we're in the central time zone, which means that you can communicate to both coasts uh, a lot more significantly than if you were on on one of those uh, coasts. And uh, and also the the middle of the country is I've always said is the same uh, section uh, of the country. I mean, you know, uh, we, don't, we don't export a lot of trends and, and fads, but, uh, but, but we, the, the decision-making uh, seems to be a, a little more calmer uh, in the Midwest. And, uh, uh, you know, many people probably don't know, I mean, we, are, we, are, uh, we, we export $14 billion a year in soybeans and corn. And we also have a huge apple industry in Missouri hmm. that most people don't even know about. Uh, and uh, we are becoming a, a multicultural uh, state. And I, I think that in, in, uh, in days to come, we're going to, to really uh, uh, get the attention of the whole world. Uh, and, I, and, 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 and although this seems petty, but I think even sports plays a role uh, of, of, of um sending messages out. For example, you, you know, you can't play on the Kansas City Chiefs uh, and beat up women. You know, uh, the, the, the ownership will not, I mean, we lost a great running back two years ago uh, because he was seen uh, uh, hitting a woman or kicking a woman. Uh, and really and, and, and the, the Chiefs said, you can't stay on our team. So that player now is in Cleveland. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think, I mean, now you can do that. I mean, all you have to do, uh, other teams will pick them, pick them up. But, but I, I think, you know, we, we have a, 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 a section of the city for whatever reason, I, I think should be providing more leadership than it, than it does. We have the capacity to do it. I think people are a lot calmer uh, here and you don't have to worry about people falling off mountains. Well, Congressman, thanks for your heart for our state. Thank you for your heart for the region. And 
many, many decades of social leadership. Anything you want to leave us with before we before we uh, close out here today? I want people to understand that um, God is still on the throne. I don't care what 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 you see uh, happening in the world. It doesn't mean that God has a has abandoned or abdicated the throne. God is still sitting on the throne, uh, looking out over His own. And I think we we all are His own. We are uh, the the people of God. And and I, I don't even think that it's 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 uh, blasphemous to say the blood of the prophets flow through our veins. Mm. Uh, that means we have work to do, uh, and and the day is is, is, uh, is short, uh, but and the work is hard. But my goodness, every time we uh, achieve a little part of what God wants, uh, it means the world has gotten better, even if it's just a little bitty piece uh, of of a world that we occupy. Congressman, thank you for your encouragement. Thank you for your heart and your many years of labor for all of us in, in this region. Look forward to having you back on the Social Leader Podcast someday soon. Thanks so much. I enjoy it. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Well, everybody, thank you again for joining me for the Social Leader Podcast. Gosh, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Congressman Cleaver. And if you enjoyed this show, I have a huge favor to ask of you, though. I need you to hit that like button. I need you to share the show out. If you're watching us on Facebook, make sure you share it into all of your groups and share it with your friends. Look, everyone has the opportunity right now to operationalize and to actualize our social priorities. We don't just have to have charity sprinkles on the top. We have the opportunity, in fact, the necessity right now to really bake those social priorities into the cake of our leadership. And every one of us has the opportunity to do that, as you heard the congressman say today. So as we wrap up, I want to remind you that this show is presented by Reconciliation Services. And also, we want to tell you about our new e-course. You can go to thesocialleader.org if you want to learn more about how to increase your social impact as a leader. Until next time, I look forward to Seeing you here, hopefully, on Facebook or wherever I see you. And again, thank you to Congressman Cleaver for the wisdom he gave us today. Have a great day. <music>